You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Episode number 76 of that one time on tour is brought to you by the band Friendly Fire. Friendly Fire is a melodic punk band formed in 2016, hailing from Jacksonville, Florida. Their debut album, Terminal Wonderlust, drops on November 29th. For more information on Friendly Fire, check out Instagram at friendly underscore fire underscore official or on Facebook forward slash friendly fire official you can also pre-order the new record over at getradrecords.bandcamp.com now here it is their new single push slow
Hey, this is Joey Cape from Lagwagon, and you're listening to That One Time on Tour. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe for Grind podcast. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. What is going on? This is Chris Winnie. As always, I am your host for that one time on tour if you're joining us for the first time, this is my podcast where I get to sit down with somebody in or around the entertainment industry and have a stellar conversation. Uh, thanks for checking out last week's episode with Lars Fredrickson from Rancid and the Old Firm Casuals. I had a blast speaking with Lars and uh, it was it was a huge episode. So thanks for checking that out. Hopefully a lot of you stuck around for this week's episode. This week's episode, I got to sit down with Mr. Joey Cape from Lagwagon. Uh, Joey has a successful solo career as well, and he's play, he plays in Me First in the Gimme Gimmies. He played in Bad Astronaut. He's done all kinds of cool stuff, and uh, currently they are on tour with Face to Face. And uh, yeah, me and Joey had a great conversation. Before I get to my conversation, I do need to take care of some business. I have sponsors that help this show keep the lights on. I want to tell you guys about The Merch Planet. You can check them out at themerchplanet.com. They're a wonderful merchandise company. They make shirts and stickers and all kinds of cool stuff for your band or company or whatever you need. Hit them up at themerchplanet.com. Make sure to use my promo code TOTOT15 and you're going to get 15% off of your order. Uh, you're going to hear another little ad in the middle of the podcast for the Merch Planet, but check them out. Also, you need to check out Permanence Tattoo Gallery. I tell you, every week, my buddy Jacob Harrison owns that place, and it is awesome. It's one of the best shops I've ever been to. It's over in Anderson, Indiana on Meridian Street. If you guys are not local to central Indiana, you need to come here and get tattooed. It's really cool, and you're going to love it. They're going to hook you up with a great deal. Check them out on all the social media platforms at Permanence Tattoo Gallery. 
I also need to tell you guys about the band of the beginning, Friendly Fire. They're awesome. Go check them out. You can go to getradrecords.bandcamp.com and you can pre-order their new record, their debut record, Terminal Wonderlust. So go check out Friendly Fire. If you have a company or a band and you'd like to get involved and sponsor a few episodes or just one episode, you can hit me up, tototpodcast at gmail.com, and we will work out the details. I work with all budgets. I'm just trying to keep this thing going and growing in quality and content. If you would like to help the show out and you want to go on over to our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. You can get involved at the $5 level. That's going to get you all kinds of bonus episodes and awesome exclusive content. So check it out. It really helps us out. We also have a tier over there, the $25 producer tier. And we have punk rock Bob Foster on Instagram. He is our first producer patron and he wanted to let you guys know about this really cool group in Hemet, California where he lives it's called punks in the park they they get together and they feed the homeless and they do all kinds of really good and positive things and you guys really need to support them and check them out you can go to their facebook page and i think there's a facebook group as well it's punks in the park so thanks a lot for Punk Rock Bob Foster for letting me know about that. And you guys should support Punks in the Park. If you're anywhere close to him at California, go check it out. They do some really, really cool stuff. Okay, so that is it for me trying to get money from you guys. So now I am going to do a top five list, a TOTOT top five list. This is where you, the listener, sends in a top five list. And normally I tell you my top five list as well, but today's top five list is pretty good. And I'm just going to go ahead and just tell you his, and I'm not going to tell you mine because it's kind of the same thing. This comes from my old bandmate, Mr. Christopher Rowe from the Ataris. He sent this in on Instagram. Actually, Dewey Halpus from Peer Pleasure sent in the top five list, and then Chris sent in his top five list too. So I might read Dewey's as well if we have time. But uh, it's the top five worst things an opening band can do to the headliner. So Chris Rowe from the Ataris, here he goes. Number five, playing an encore. <laughs> number four, playing two encores. Number, th- number three, playing three encores. Now I know that sounds ridiculous, but that has happened. I've been on tour I think with Chris and that has happened. Number two, talking to friends and family while they're loading their gear off stage. That's a big deal. If you guys are out there and you're opening for a bigger band or if you're on tour with a bigger band, but you are the opener when you're done playing, get your shit off stage. I mean, it's just common courtesy and respect to the band that is going after you, whether they're a bigger band than you or not. It's just common respect. It's not your show. You know what I mean? So, yeah, get your shit off stage. And number one, Chris has sitting drinks on our amps. I think he was referring to my amp and his amp. That has happened before. I had this, uh, it wasn't even my amp. It was Brian, uh, my my buddy Brian, who played bass for the Ataris, a Sovtech amp. And if it wouldn't, if it hadn't have been in like a flight case, it would have been totally destroyed on the top because people put so many drinks on top of that amp while we were on tour. So Chris, yes, I, I agree with all of those. Number five, playing an encore. Number four, playing two encores. Number three, playing three encores. Number two, talking to friends and family while loading their gear off stage. And number one, sitting drinks on our amps. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'll read Dewey's really quick too because it's pretty good. 
So this is my buddy Dewey Halbus over at Pure Pleasure, uh, fellow Jabberjaw podcast. <laughs> he says, uh, number five, showing up late. Yes, if you're opening the show, you should not show up late. Number four, parking in the bus parking at clubs with on-street parking. Yeah, you know, if there's a place for a bus, don't park there. Park on the street. <laughs> Number three, speaking when not spoken to, making eye contact with the headliner crew or band. I think that's kind of funny. I think he just threw that in there. Uh, I don't think Dewey's really like that. Number two, insisting on setting up a 12-piece drum kit with a gong or other electronic gizmos. Yeah, man, like... I remember when I was young, we would show up with to play like these shows when I was in my first band, Chronic Chaos, and we always called them Backwoods Lars kits or, or Tom, Backwoods Lars Toms because you'd show up and there'd be like the guy who worked for the city who, you know, is in his, you know, mid to late 20s and he's never left his hometown and he's playing a drum kit that's got 80 pieces. And it's just, you don't need that, man. My, my drummer had like a three or four piece kit. So uh, yeah, the 12 piece drum kit, that's funny. And uh, then he says, number one is specific, but it's pulling your wiener out in front of the headliner rig and pissing into it and then throwing it on the windshield as they drive past. And he says, that's very specific. And he says, thanks. Thanks for that one for Chris from the AKAs. They won't soon forget that shit. So that seems like a good tour story that, uh, that Dewey needs to tell. And I also told him a story. Well, he was telling me about, you know, the piss on the windshield. I was on tour with The Reason, this band up in Canada, and uh, we were playing in Saskatoon, I'm pretty sure, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and there was like this punk rock guy with Liberty Spikes and all the bullshit and chains and stuff on him, and and uh, he was he didn't like the band, so he was pissing on the side of our trailer, and I didn't like that very much, and uh, I almost knocked him out. And all the Canadian guys that I was with, they were kind of freaked out and thought I was this big, scary American. But I think I, I think I even pushed his face down in the piss. I don't know. I don't know. I just uh, it was one of my Henry Rollins moments, I guess. I just went I went ape shit on some some kid. So uh, punk rock kid with Liberty Spikes from about 12 years ago. If you're out there listening to this, I'm sorry that I hit you and I'm sorry that I made you smell and kind of you know, be down in your own piss on the, on the ground in Saskatoon. Saskatoon is a wonderful city and everybody else was very, very nice. But, uh, Mr. Punk Rock, if you're listening, I apologize, man. I'm, I'm a different person now. <laughs> okay. So that is the top five. Thank you, Dewey from Pure Pleasure Podcast. Everybody check his show out. It is awesome and you will love it. And Mr. Christopher Rowe, thank you so much for writing in. If you guys have a top five list, you can email it to me, hit me up on the socials, whatever, and I will get to it eventually. So that is it. This is a long intro. And uh, the thing is, I really don't give a shit because lately I've been posting on Reddit and people will go in like, interview starts at 2147, interview starts at 1638. Dude, there's a fast forward on all podcast apps. If you don't want to hear me talk, just fast forward. I'm, I'm not I'm not getting like aggro on this show. I just people are so fucking stupid, man. Uh, but that is not you, my my awesome, loyal, faithful listeners. Thank you so much. And I always get all kinds of feedback on the stupid content that I give you guys. If it's ghost stories or if it's, you know, whatever it is, top five list, TOTOT radio, you guys always like it and you always let me know. 
But there are those trolls out there that eh, interview starts at sixteen forty eight, whatever. So uh, I love the people that want to hear all this crazy shit because this is my podcast and I like to talk about it. And I love you guys. So thanks for the support. Check us out on all the shows on all the socials at TOTOT Podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And uh, that's it. I'm going to get into my conversation now with Mr. Joey Cape from Lagwagon. It's a good one. So strap in. Here we go. And I'm on the line with Mr. Joey Cape from Lagwagon. How are you doing today, Joey? Good. I'm moving. <laughs> You're moving? Yeah. Yeah. Good times. Good times. You're out on the West Coast right? still, right? I am. San Francisco. So uh, are you moving to like a new apartment, a new house? Like you're on, you're on tour so much. I always wondered like if you had this, like a crash pad or not. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I have an apartment that I've been paying for, but it's just so expensive. And so I'm moving into a basement of a uh, uh, family member's house. Well, that's good. And man. yeah, I mean, you know, just going to save some money. Um, because it's crazy. I'm always gone and it's just ridiculous, you know, like 40 grand a year or whatever on rent. Like it doesn't make any sense. Cause San Francisco is a pretty expensive place. I live in Indiana and I, I moved back here from the coast because I wanted to save money when I had kids, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I look at the whole country all the time. I'm constantly like, you know, thinking like, wow, if I moved to Jersey or Tulsa, or, you know, yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. I mean, I'm born and raised in near, near a coast. So I, you know, it's just, it's hard to actually swallow it, but you know, we have such a good deal on the place we live now. Like the new place is just so cheap. So for where we are, um, it's, it's just not worth moving, but yeah, I had an apartment for a while and it was just way, way too much money. It's a waste. <laughs> I talked to uh, a lot of people, you know, punk rockers that have since moved to Nashville. I've had like Pete oh, yeah. from The Offspring and Trevor from Face to Face and different people. And I know that Nashville is now starting to get really expensive, even in the suburbs. So I don't know if maybe yeah. they're, they're ready for a max S exodus to go somewhere else, right? Yeah, I mean, Nashville's one of those places. I mean, it has such great rock and roll history, music history, country especially, obviously. But uh it is, it is, I love Nashville, but you know, yeah, I mean, much like Austin or something, you know, those places just get more and more expensive. There's just a lot of people, I guess, you know, yeah. and what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. So you guys have uh, your ninth record railer coming out October 4th on fat records. I wanted to talk to you about that record because as an avid fan of your band, I've been listening to you guys, you know, since, since trash came out and I, I want to tell you, I've liked everything you guys have done, but this record definitely has a throwback vibe. It sounds like early lag wagon. Was that intentional? Like what was the writing process like for the new record? Well, it was written very quickly. Um, and I think when I was working on it, I had, we already had the studio time booked and I had been working on my solo album. Let me know when you give up and, uh, there were a couple delays in that process that was supposed to be done many, many, like almost like, you know, a half year before. So we had this sort of plan, you know, and then, and we had booked a producer and all this stuff for Lagwagon. And then there was delays in that other album. And 
finally it came down to when I finally finished that and it was in the bag. Uh, and then there was a tour or something. I just, I ended up with less than a month Wow! to write the record. And I had a lot of ideas and I was stuff was brewing, but my head wasn't really in it until that moment. Um, so I went into the studio I work in, in LA and I, I just kind of sat there with a guitar and a click track and some fragments of ideas. And I, I just started thinking, okay, you know, the whole, what would Lagwagon do? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And I just started writing songs that way. I had not done that before in the past. It's always been, I just write a lot of music and some stuff when you get down to formatting really works for Lagwagon and some doesn't. Yeah. And then it goes through a further step, which is then I bring stuff to the band and we really find out if it works. In this case, there was no luxury for that. So I, I, I got about halfway through songs and I started to realize, oh shit, this really sounds, this is sounding like, you know, I had a friend that I work with at the studio who would kind of visit me every once in a while. How's it going? And bring me a coffee. And I'd be like, I'm in hell. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know if I'm making anything good or not. And he was like, all I know is every time I come down here, it sounds like an old lag wagon record. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. And I thought, Oh shit. You know, this is interesting because I'm, it's not calculated, but I'm just thinking, you know, what would lag wagon do? And somehow or another, it's starting to sound like old stuff. And I thought, well, that's cool. I'm just going to let whatever natural happens. And then it, when I brought it to the band, it kept it, it. It just was moving that direction, regardless of effort or, you know, it wasn't calculated. It was just natural, you know, naturally happening that way. Sorry, uh, yeah, it's a trip. And and uh, then you know, it kind of got to a point where everybody in the band agreed that it sounded throwback, and uh, that that's when we started discussing, you know album titles and album covers and kind of going with like a little bit of humor and you know that kind of uh, older lag wagon thing and um then i when i started writing lyrics uh there was one song in particular bubble that i i wrote about sort of embracing the bubble that you're put in you know people compartmentalize music and yeah and being proud of it and i kind of tongue-in-cheek wrote this sort of fun song about that and that kind of sealed the deal and the title railer, that's kind of like slang when you guys were growing up. That means like not good or something, right? Is, is that what it means? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I was a little kid, uh, where I grew up, everybody surfed and there was this older surfer guy. There were many of these older guys that were like lifers, you know, these surfers that, that basically, uh, that was what they did, you know, and they were, that's what they were going to do. And, and who knows what was going to happen to them. And there was this one guy that everybody called Bowie, Bowie, like the floating, you know, object in the ocean, you yeah. know? Um, and his name was Scott, but this guy Bowie kind of made up his own language. Like a lot of those old surfer guys did. And one of the words that he would say all the time was railer. And this is like in the seventies, you know? And uh, that word just kind of traveled with me through life and eventually kind of into the band. And then all these other bands we toured with started saying it, and it kind of caught on. And it made its way into a song on Blaze called Falling Apart. Okay. Um, and I don't know. It's almost like one of those words that feels like it's from the vocabulary of my band. So it seemed really appropriate as a title, you know, especially 
And then we started thinking about, well, Railer is sort of funny, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's Railer something you say, you get a blowout on the freeway and you go, oh, Railer. Like, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. You the know? cover of the record is a guy like rollerblading, right? Totally. Yeah. So I, I kind of thought that's yeah. what it was about at first. And then when I did it some is. research, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So that's it. It's like, then, you know, you think back to like the early nineties when we're kind of, you know, that musically it's sort of nodding to when, you know, we got our start in the late eighties, but that era when people started rollerblading and all of us were just skaters and surfers or snowboarders or whatever, and I remember when those guys first start showing up at like parks and stuff and, and that would be the response, you know, it'd be like, Oh man, Rayler, what's that guy doing? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so it, it just, I, I sent the idea to an old friend of mine, this girl, Athena Lonsdale, who's a great photographer who shot hang. And I told her, I said, you know, we got this concept, you know, couple of skater kids looking at this rollerblading guy like grinding you know and we're gonna call the album railer and she goes i get it and she basically sent that photo like a week later like what do you think <laughs> and it was like we all just sort of went perfect you know that's awesome man. so yeah well i tell you i don't know if you know a lot about my history i used to play in the ataris but so did like nine million other people but uh yeah yeah you play guitar i think huh? yeah i played guitar at the ataris and, and chris rowe used to always tell me stories of when he first went out to california and met all the like the nardcore guys and the guys from galita and hanging out with Derek and everybody and he said that the sense of humor and some of the slang, like he always thought people were fucking with him until he finally like realized that they all had the same sense of humor and it was kind of like their own language. So I think it's great yeah. that Railer became the name of the new, the new record. Cause I've heard those stories for my whole life, you know? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, you actually produced, I mean, we'll, we'll jump back to this here in a second, but I was interested. I know that you produced the Atari's third record, End Is Forever, back in 2001. You sang backup on a song. I produced two of them. I produced another one called Blue Skies. Oh, you produced Blue Skies. See, see, I didn't even know that, and I was in the fucking That band. was the first one I did. And then, uh, yeah, and then we did uh, the End Is Forever record a couple years later, I guess. Yeah. Oh, it was great. I mean, it was fun working with those guys, you know? Yeah, did uh, I've worked with Chris quite a bit in the studio. We did a lot of demos at my home studio and whatnot. Do you have any uh, little quips or stories from being in there? I'd really like to hear it since I know Chris so well. Totally. <laughs> totally. Oh, my God. Awesome. Of course. Yeah, and I hope it doesn't bum him out. But No, it won't bum him out, I'm sure. The one that I always remember is we were in the blasting room doing End Is Forever, and most of that record was written for his, I think, current wife or at least girlfriend or yeah. fiance or something. Yeah. And, you know, he, he he's a very emotional guy, and he wears that emotion on his sleeve, which is cool, I think. But he... He, there were a lot of love songs, you know? Yeah. And um, there was this point where I, I got I got a flu when we were in the studio. So there's this sofa in the back of the control room. And my friend Jason Livermore is engineering. And Chris is doing vocals. And I'm sitting there with like a fever on the back couch, kind of like almost in and out of a, a delirium, you know? And I'm listening to Chris sing. And every once in a while, I'm like, ah, that seemed kind of flat or... or I wonder about this melody, you know, but like just doing my best, you know, yeah. to, to, to basically armchair produce. Yeah. And I, at one point I realized I heard him sing a line or something and he was saying the word love. And it occurred to me that every song had the word in it 
and more than once, several times, and in some cases, maybe five or 10 times. And, and I just said, Jason, hold on, stop, like talk back. And I said, Hey, Chris, you ever hear the, uh, the theory that if you use the word love too much, like if you say it too much, it becomes sort of meaningless. And he kind of went, man, this is, you know, for Denise and, you know, I like, you know, he defended himself and I was, Hey, it's your record. You know, I'm just saying, using that word an awful lot, yeah, awful lot on this record. And I remember that, you know, just kind of debating him on it. I don't know why that's, that story sort of sticks with me. <laughs> of course I lost that battle. Yeah, of and, course. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I think she, she, uh, she took priority over me for sure. <laughs> How did that, that, that relationship come about? I know you guys were on fat and the Ataris did an EP on fat, but they were also on Kung Fu. Did you just meet through Derek playing with Chris or did you meet through like fat? How did that come about? Well, when Derek was playing with Chris, there was a point Ataris came out with Lagwagon okay. on tour. And, you know, honestly, I cannot remember the timeline exactly. I don't know if that happened after or before, but Chris and I met in Santa Barbara. I was living there. He was living there, uh, I think. And I don't know. The, the only thing I remember is sitting down with him at a bar called The Sportsman one night. And we had like a piece of paper. And basically, we made a little like kind of contract, you know, for me to yeah. produce the record. And he was going to go back to uh, the um, Kung Fu label and say, this is what Joey wants to produce our record. Um, and it was like small potato stuff, you know, it was like, you know, but uh, I was doing a lot of work at a studio called Orange Whip Studios. And I think they were planning to record there. And Chris and I had become friends. And I just don't remember much more than that. Next thing I knew we were in the studio, we had like 10 days or less <laughs> yeah. and we had a tiny budget and I'm sure we went over budget and <laughs> you know, we were just, it was like, we got one day to do drums. We got one day to do bass and guitar, you know, it was just nuts. So no pre-production probably at all. Right. I, I think there was pre-production actually. I think, I think I've, always been a fan of doing as much as possible yeah. of that um because it does save you so much money if you really have your your stuff together before you go in um and i think there was a lot of listening to demos and songs and you know just a uh, a lot of debate and between chris and i but chris is a very um he has a vision and he's one he's a guy he's a lot like me in that regard i mean there's only so much you can produce you know because he really has a, a clearer vision of what he wants to do. My favorite Chris Rowe thing is in the studio. We we're doing demos at my old studio. And, and, uh, I think I heard the, the term one more time about a million times a day. <laughs> Cause he's like, one more time, one more time, one more time. I was like, dude, just say eight yeah. more times. <laughs> right. So that kind of take, that'll kind of take us into your solo record, uh, that just came out in July on fat records. Let me know when you give up. What was, is there like a different process? You said that sometimes you're writing songs for Lagwagon and then you figure out which ones work and which ones don't. Do you have to get into a different headspace when you're writing your own solo stuff? Yeah. I mean, you know, I just write music and, and, and some of it, uh, you know, if I, if it's a good era for me, I'm writing a lot and some of it just clearly doesn't sound like anything, but a solo song and some of it sounds 
ukulele to me, like a lag wagon song. It depends on the song, you know, what sort of vibe it wants to have and how much, you know, what kind of energy it has. And I don't know why it's usually fairly easy to tell. Uh, but I'm not always right about it either. Let me know when you give up was completely different though, because I had this idea, this concept for the record for quite a while. And I wrote most of the music with that concept in mind. So I was specifically writing for that and I hadn't done that before. So, you know, I mean, I'd always just written music and then formatted later or whatever yeah. with bands. And, and, uh, you know, that kind of bothered me. And so when I got this concept, I thought, okay, it's really important to me. I want to do this just right. And I, I wrote about 40 songs for that record. Wow. And somehow only 11 of them ended up there. And, um, and I still have all sorts of material. And there were many songs that got recorded that never got released. Um, so I think I'll probably do like a volume two at some point. I don't know. There was a point where I thought it was going to be a 40 song record, you know, where I was that I was getting kind of losing my mind in the studio. Like I'm going to make a 40 song. It's going to be three <laughs> albums. And I'm sure the label won't mind. Yeah, you know, definitely. Of course. Yeah. Which is not realistic, <laughs> but, um, and then, you know, I even, the double album at some point was considered. And then finally, I just thought, no, no, no I'll just make, you know, like a 10 song record and I'll just take the, the stuff that works best together and, um, and kind of speaks to the concept as, as well as possible. And yeah, I don't know. It's a trip. Um, I wish I could find more time in my life to always do records that way. It's better to focus on the thing in front of you. Did you guys, you said, you know, the way that you guys wrote the new Lagwagon record, did you just write the songs that are on the record or were there a few that maybe didn't make the cut that you had done as well? There's a specific song. There were a couple that didn't make the cut, um, but there was a specific song that didn't make Let Me Know When You Give Up, but it was a pretty heavy song. And when done differently, would probably sound like a Bad Religion song. So I brought that one to the band and the band demoed it. Um, and it's a song called some kind of garden. And it, it even sounds like a bad religion title, you know, <laughs> but, uh, it, it was weird. It, it, when we got down to recording, um, Railer, it was just, I don't know. I started thinking maybe this is not a good song. It, it missed on two different albums with, totally different bands yeah um but i'm reworking it now <laughs> so okay. i don't know what's going to end up happening but that one just it just i don't know it's so it's a really long song like five and a half minutes long and it has a million different parts it's it is it, just didn't quite work out <laughs> but sooner or later i'll figure out what the arrangement's supposed to be in that song hey this is chris from that one time on tour Odds are, if you're listening to this, you're in a band or know someone who is. One of the biggest problems facing bands is finding affordable, high-quality merchandise. Well, not anymore. The Merch Planet offers soft, high-end quality shirts starting as low as $6 a piece. And right now, they are offering 15% off your first order to all TOTOT listeners. They have lightning-fast turnarounds and ship everywhere throughout the U.S. and Canada. Head on over to TheMerchPlanet.com and use the promo code TOTOT15 at checkout. You'll be glad you did. 
so as as a guitar player myself, I'm I'm fairly studied. I went to college for it. I know all my theory. I teach guitar for a living. The thing that I always really liked about Lagwagon is, you know, and it says it even on the Fat Wreck documentary, kind of ex Heshers, like you guys have that metal kind of thing coming into play. Now, as the primary mm-hmm. songwriter, and you know, I respect you very much as a songwriter, your solo stuff and everything you've done. Do you bring the songs in with all of those crazy riffs or does Chris and everybody kind of add those later off of like a basic blueprint for the song? How does that work? Usually the way they come in is the way they end up. But in the case of Raylor, there's two songs that are really riffy that the the riffs were written by little Joe. Little Joe uh, is our bass player and he is one incredible musician i mean the guy is just exceptionally great and he writes things that i just could not write yeah um the songs surviving california and uh dangerous animal all of the music is written by joe and um i had to somehow figure out a way to put vocals and melodies to that and lyrics and those worked out great for i love that combination of his music and my music the other stuff was all written by me um and yeah, it's weird. Like the first song on the record, "Stealing Light." When I gave that to him, it had that that finger tapping intro, you know, with the crazy guitar and all that stuff. And I gave it to him, and they were kind of like, "Holy shit, uh, who's playing that?" You know, <laughs> I was like, awesome. "It's easier than it sounds," you know. But um, it depends, you know. But I'm, I, admittedly, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of punching in the studio for me because I'm not the caliber of guitar those guys at all yeah uh but i can write like the hardest thing for me to play and bring it to those guys and they're like ah i got this you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, then I'm that's a nice like, oh. luxury to take it to them yeah. and they're like oh i totally can do this man exactly so yeah. what were some of the like growing up some of the influences that got you to want to be a songwriter i mean i'm sure there's a lot of different stuff in there right yeah i mean my my household growing up was there was a lot of music being played my dad was a pianist and a singer um and my sister was a piano player my brother was my these are older sister older brother my brother was a jazz musician and my father listened to a lot of classical music and my mother was really into the whole singer songwriter thing in the 70s and so everything from bach uh to the Beatles was going on in my house at all time. You know, there was just a lot of music. Yeah. And I think I, I, you know, I just, I loved a good song. I loved a good pop song and, uh, the singer songwriter thing, folk thing was, uh, kind of spoke to me really young and the Beatles and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I, I guess I can only attribute, you know, a love for song just, uh, turning into well, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I can always write a song. Yeah. Um, and I, I started writing songs when I was really young, like 10. And um, they weren't good. I mean, I, no, no chance of getting any of those released anytime soon. Well, actually, it's funny. I mean, one of the first songs I ever wrote is a song called Angry Days that's on the first Lagwagon album. Uh, I wrote that song when I was, I mean, God, I don't know. I mean, one of the songs that the first songs that I wrote that that's like actually a song and it was like really corny. I mean, the original lyrics, it was kind of a, it was like a world peace kind of vibe, but I mean, I was like 
14 or 13 years old. Yeah. And then I just kept, it kept coming back. And then finally, uh, Lagwagon had actually written all the music and we were about to go in the studio to record uh, our first record. And I found this demo of it and I went, Whoa, this could make a great pop punk song. And I kind of reworked it and rewrote the lyrics and I brought it to the band at the last minute and it ended up making the record. Which is weird. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's, I, I, you know, to this day, I still kind of find like old cassettes and, you know, like weird, you know, versions of things that I wrote when I was really young, especially things in my twenties. And, and every once in a while, uh, you revisit something and it, it seems very clear to you what works about it and I'll rework things. But I think I'm, I, I may just, have tapped that well for the last time a year or two ago yeah <laughs> there may not be anything left but that's okay because i'm i i'm far more prolific i think as i get older well i wanted to say like uh my first band i ever had back in high school was this band called chronic chaos and i graduated from high school in 97 i remember in 98 getting the let's talk about feelings record and uh i put it in my cd player in my car and it got stuck in the cd player and it was in oh, there for man. the next three years. And all I could listen to other than the radio was that record. <laughs> oh, sorry. So, no. So I'm telling wow. you at some point in the future, I'll have to like mail you a, a CD of, of my band that, cause we recorded it. We wrote and recorded a CD right after I graduated high school. And I'll tell you, man, it is a huge lag wagon ripoff. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Because all I listened to for three years in the car was let's talk about feelings. That's funny. Oh man! Well, maybe your CD got stuck in my car. Yeah, well, maybe and we'll knows. be we'll be even. And then the next record I make, I'll go. Sorry, man. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So back to the solo stuff. I was very interested. Uh, somebody that I met uh, a bunch of times, and he was always the nicest guy in the world. And I, I grew up loving his music. And I know you were very good friends with him, Tony Sly from No Use for a Name. I know that yeah. you, you guys did a split together in two thousand four. Um, do you have any tidbits or anything about Tony? Cause I know the people that listen to this show love Tony. Uh, hopefully in the future, we're going to have Rory on maybe Matt or somebody, but uh, no use for a name was a big deal for me as was Lagwagon. You guys, for me, were kind of, I felt like I loved all the bands on fat and all the bands of that era, but the songwriting in Lagwagon and no use for a name, I think was kind of on another level for me personally. And I've just, hmm. I know you guys were close and I'd like to maybe hear a, a nice story about Tony if possible. Oh, well, I have so many. Um, it's always hard when pressed to think of uh, anything in particular. But I'll just say that, you know, um, Tony and I had a, a very, you know, exceptional relationship. And it didn't really happen to till much, much later in our lives. Uh, I knew Tony. I had met Tony. I'd played shows with his band. I thought he was funny the first time I met him. I, you know, he was a charming guy, but he was a little quieter than I am. And um, we didn't really get to know each other. We didn't live in the same town. We only toured together a few times. But it was later when we both had daughters, we both had children um, less than a month apart. Wow. Um, Fiona and Violet, my daughter, his daughter, Fiona. And, uh, you know, I think we we started talking about, you know, how we've been writing on the acoustic forever. And we were I was already starting to do acoustic shows and uh, and 
did that kind of thing. And he said he wanted to do it. And, and then we talked, we did, you know, we, we got to know each other during the split, you know, the first split acoustic volume one or whatever the thing's called. And, and, uh, the first time we got on tour together, that's when we really became close friends because we just, we were both singer songwriters for bands for just about the same amount of time. Yeah. Um, you know, we both had gone through the doing really well with music and being completely, uh, you know, taking care of our families to the change in the climate and struggling. We both were fathers. We both had daughters the same age, you know, it's just like so many parallels. And it was that weird thing where, you know, late in life, it's hard to make close friends because it's really you close hard. off. <laughs> really hard. Man. And yeah, it was just meant to be, you know, we became um incredibly close and uh and then we just started touring together a bunch and uh made another split later and he we did the scorpios record together and we just got closer and closer and i don't know he's one of the best friends i ever had in my life and it happened in my late 30s i guess yeah which is unusual and uh yeah i miss him so much he was he was such a great guy he's just one of the funniest people I've ever met. And, um, one of the, uh, it's a very thoughtful, very kind, um, very smart. Just, just, yeah, it's, it's truly a, a big loss. Well, thanks for telling me that, man. I just, I've, I've always been a huge fan of both of you guys. And, and I just knew that, you know, when we lost Tony, like the world lost a great guy. And I mean, I, I like I said, I'd met him a few times back in the day on the road and, he couldn't have been nicer to me and he didn't have to be, you know what I mean? Yeah. He was a very, very good person. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's funny. It's, I'll be writing a song now and you know, you do this thing sometimes when you, when, when you've lost somebody where you just for a second, you forget that they're gone. And, uh, it was so common for me back then or him to show each other what we were working on. I've got this new tune and uh, what do you think? And uh, any ideas for me, I'm kind of stuck and that kind of thing. And every once in a while I'll be working on something and I'll forget that Tony's gone and I'll think, Oh, I'll just call Tony. He's still on my phone, you know? Yeah. And you know, it, it's like one second of course. And then I think, Oh no. I Dude, I have the same, I have the same thing. Like uh, I lost my dad back in 2005 to a car accident. And to this day, oh, I mean, it's so 2000. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. In 2019, and still to this day, something cool happened. I mean, even like, you know, having you on my show, because I'm, I'm a huge Livewagon fan, I would want to call my dad. And like for that split second, I think about it. And yeah, he's still in my phone. I've never taken him out of my phone. And it's been, you know, over a decade. So I totally get that, man. Yeah. It's a trip, huh? Yeah, totally. It's funny because, you know, Tony, his daughter took over his phone number. Okay. Uh yeah. And so I've gotten pretty close to the family over the years since Tony's passing. And um, every once in a while, I'll have there'll be some reason that I'm texting with Fiona. And on my end, it just says Tony. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. Yeah, it's sweet. I mean, I, 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 I think when you lose people like that in your life, I, I think at the, at the end, in the end of the day, you know, the way, the way I see it is I was so lucky to have known that person. And, yeah. And I just have to try to 
look at it that way. And I'm really glad that I actually have connections to people that had connections to him so we can talk about him. Still comes up all the time, you know, something happens. I didn't, I didn't know like, you know, how the topic would go, but I just, uh, being a huge fan of both of you guys, I knew that you guys had a special relationship. So thanks for sharing all that. Yeah, sure, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, I, I, I think that's how people live on, you know, I mean, it's okay. I, I've lost a lot of people in my life and I've come to be one of those, uh, I'm not proud of this, but I think I'm pretty comfortable with it. And, uh, you know, so it's not a, never a real issue for me to talk about these things. A lot of people I think have a really hard time revisiting, you know, the people that they've lost and talking about, and they kind of don't want to talk about it. Yeah. I, I feel the opposite about it. I, I love talking about the guys that I've lost, you know, the people I've lost in my life because, you know, the stories that seem to remain are not, anything but they're just the best stories you know yeah. the good stories the good memories seem to live on um which is great yeah everybody that i've lost in my life i mean i think it's therapeutic and helpful to talk about it and uh <clears throat> like my, my father that i told you about he crazy you know like i lost him when he was 52 and he was a 52 year old uh punk rock fan like he loved you guys and pennywise and no effects and it just kind of blew my mind because i would let him hear the bands that i liked and then he would go down to our local record store and I'd go out to his car the next day and he'd have the brand new Pennywise record or the brand new Lagwagon record. He just, awesome. he was a really cool dude, man. I think you would have liked him. Yeah, I'm sure. So, uh, I'm 52 I, now. That's one thing I want to talk about. I, I realized that when I was looking through some stuff on the internet and, uh, I can't remember the title of the song, but there's a song where you mentioned not wanting to do it after a certain age. And now I think you're past the age you actually talked about in the song. So oh yeah, how yeah. does, how does it feel to still be doing this in a band that you've been in for, you know, a big portion of your life and you're still putting out amazing punk rock. I mean, that's gotta be kind of cool, man. Is there any, you think you're going to stop anytime soon? I don't think so. I mean, it, it may not be the same kind of music, but, at some point, I think you you come to the realization that this is what you've put all your you put all your eggs in this one basket, and yeah. this is what you do, and this is what you know how to do, and this is what gives you pleasure. As long as it still gives you pleasure, the only reason to stop would be because you have to survive, you know, and you need yeah. money to survive, and there's all that. But uh, but you know, we still do okay. We still we're still able to tour a lot and. As long as that's going on and I can kind of squeak out a living on it, I don't see any reason to stop doing it because the options are things like going back to painting houses, which I have no problem with. But that's is that uh, what you think you would probably do if like say the band went away tomorrow? Like uh I always tell my wife because I teach guitar now, I did uh corporate entertainment for a while where I was like a, a talent buyer and whatnot when I got out of touring. And I always tell my wife, I don't have a lot of discernible skills for the normal world. Right. Like exactly. Do you, what do you think you would be doing if maybe this wasn't an option? Well, before the band had any success before our first album, I was actually on my way to going to medical school. And wow. I, I, that's what I want. I wanted to do. I wanted to be a doctor. And, uh, and then the band, uh, we made a record, and next thing I know, we're going to be going on tour. And I sort of had to like 
put that off, you know? Yeah. And the idea was, well, this will only last a couple of years and then I'll go back to school. I'm still <laughs> yeah. only, tw- I'm in my early twenties at this point. So there's plenty of time, you know? And then decades later, you know, I realized one day like, well, I'm never going back to school for that. I got like 12 <laughs> years of school to do still, yeah. you know, or whatever it is. So this isn't going to happen. But what I did as a job, um, in the interim and for many of the early years of the band, what my job was, was house painting. Okay. Which I actually really enjoyed, you know, I, it's a, it's, you can make a good living and I, I like painting. So, you know, I, I, it's simple, but it's a trade that works. And, um, that's something that you can still do when you're older. And, uh, uh, but other than that, I don't, I just like you, I have no discernible, um, you know, I'm, I <laughs> talents or, you know, so I, I don't know if there's time to, to invent a trade. Yeah. The other thing that I could have done probably was producing. And I did a lot of that, but just like, uh, uh, record sales producing became a job that was a uh, not obsolete but somewhat you yeah, know yeah. because people make records at home and they found ways to make records really expensively and there's not a lot of people making music that that want a traditional producer uh, or at least don't have the budget to pay a traditional but so that's no longer really a, a possible living either so I, I i i mean you know as long as I can have a place to work and write, uh, music can keep continue no matter what I do. So I don't see any reason to stop doing it. There'll be a point where I just, you know, maybe don't have an avenue to release the music that yeah. I write, but I'll probably still do it because, I mean, I guess it's like being a painter or a writer. You just do it because you love it. You don't do it for any other reason. Yeah, people always say like, you know, like, like Metallica, like, well, they don't have to write music. Why do they keep going? They're the richest band in the world. Like, because it's what you do, right? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've asked that question too of that band. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the later albums I've asked the same question. <laughs> yeah. When I first got load or something, I was like, I don't think you needed to make this record. <laughs> Dude, I, I will, I will tell you like, I, when it came out, I wasn't super into it, but as it's like, it's kind of grown on me as I've gotten right. older yeah. and I've realized Funny how that happens. Yeah. Like the, the lyrics are pretty cool and like James's voice is very different, but I, I don't know. I, I dig hardwired. Have you heard the new record? That record I thought was the first like really good one in a, yeah. a long time. I mean, at least production wise and sonically stylistically, like it really was throwback to like master of puppets. Oh, definitely. I, and th- that's kind of the era that I, that I like the band a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, time changes things. There are many records that I had when I was a kid that I was like, this is wimpy, you know, I want to (laughs) hear Black Sabbath, man, what's this wimpy stuff? And then, you know, and even, even like really like guilty pleasure stuff, like bands that you just, you you just despised when you were young. And then years and years later, I'm in me first in the gimme gimme's and we're doing, you know, Karma Chameleon by <laughs> Culture Club. And I'm like, yeah. this is a good song. Like, you know what I mean? It's weird how even a, like something that radically uh, repulsive to you can later in life, you know, and I wonder if how much the familiarity plays a role in that. And it's the thing I've thought about for many years of my life. But, you know, music's interesting that way. <laughs> I think the older you get, the more open-minded you get about it too. Yeah. 
So speaking of the production on uh, on Hardwire, we were just talking about you worked on the new lag wagon lag wagon record with Cameron Webb. I know you guys have worked with Bill Stevenson from The Descendants, Fat Mike did some production, Ryan Green. You've self produced a lot of stuff. How did you guys come to the decision to get Cameron involved? Well, it started with Dave, our drummer. Um, I mean, I we knew I all of us knew about Cameron. Cameron's one of those guys who's been around a really long time and he's worked with a lot of bands, you know, in our scene and other things, you know, that we like motorhead records and things like that. And Dave said, I want to go to Cameron. And I had briefly met Cameron a few years ago when I went in to do a background vocal on a no effects record he did. And, uh, here in the city in San Francisco. And he's just he's such a nice guy. And, and, when Dave brought him up, I was like, I'm cool with that. My one thing was for the first time, I really don't want to produce this album. Yeah. That's what I said to the guys. I said, you know, I'm just, I'm really burnt right now. I, I, I wanted to write songs and I just want to, let's just demo and we'll go in with whoever does this record. Let's have them produce it entirely. So I stayed out of the way and that was pretty nice. Um, did he do any referencing? Like, I'm sure he was familiar with the band, but did you guys tell him like, Hey, we're writing these songs. It's kind of a throwback. Like, did he reference any of the old stuff or was that, was he a part of that whole decision? He did. And we didn't have to tell him. He, 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 the first time I met with him, I had lunch with him or something like that. Or I went to his studio. I was in uh, Anaheim where he is, or sorry, it's uh, Santa Ana in Southern California. Goes to Mesa area. His studio is there, and I was down there seeing a show with my daughter. And I went to the studio, and we sat down. and And he said to me immediately, he said, "You know, when I was younger, I listened to Trash and uh, Haas and uh, and Double Platinum, and I really love those records. And I really see the band doing something like that, you know, production wise." And I said, "That's amazing because I feel like this record song wise is really throwback." so perfect yeah. you know and and that was his goal i think and he that 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 was the way he went with it it was really straightforward and really like let's keep the warts and the scars and all the little you know yeah he kind of it, it was a quick process and he knew what he wanted and uh and there were times where i was like uh i think we can do better than this you know or like boy that's really gritty you know but um I mean, when the record was done, I listened to it and I think, no, he knew what he was doing. I mean, it sounds sort of like an old Lightwagon record too, you know? So I think it was the right choice for this particular record was the right choice. And you guys, I'm sure you're recording in digital format now, like, you know, almost all the world. What was the last record you guys made on tape? Oh, man. (laughs) That's a hard question. question. (laughs) Probably... Well, let's see. I'm sure Duh was made on tape, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Duh was tape. Trash Trash was tape. Haas was, interestingly enough, Haas was like this weird 32-track, two-inch digital tape. It was like ADATS? No, it was this very short-lived era of super-wide tape, but the recorder had a digital analog to digital thing and yet there was still tape very weird i to this day don't fully understand what that machine was (laughs) but remember looking at the tape and it being more you know than 
than than uh two inch it was yeah. like two and a half inches it was this really thick tape um really wide and uh so that but that album was basically an analog record too yeah. double platinum we did on adats okay um and some tape there were drums there was a big era there was an era of time where 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 things were changing over and digital wasn't there yet and so we were doing things like recording basics on tape and we did i did many records that way bad astronaut records and lag wagon records where we would track everything on tape and then we would dump it into digital and work on pro tools to finish it and there was even an era where we were chasing digital we we put code on one of the tracks of the tape and we would chase with the analog tape machine we'd chase the digital and i'm sure everybody was doing that and it was such a pain in the ass and you know there was so much room for error and you know the drives were small so what drives you were using you had these bucket drives that were like fucking 200 megabytes or something stupid (laughs) and and you would have like 20 of them going like i mean god it was a mess so Honestly, I think that that's, it's interesting because those of us that were really into analog, uh, we, we had a really hard lesson that just brainwashed us away from it. Yeah. By the time that digital was getting there, I think people that were working through that era were so fed up with the, all of the variables and, you know, the possibilities for failure that it was, you know, you kind of embraced it. But it took a long time for digital to get there. And <laughs> I still, I you know, I have a studio in LA that I work in that's really great and has a great analog console. And I'm kind of taking a step back and we're, we're going, we have way more analog stuff going on there. And I love it so much. So it's interesting, you know, um, we're, you know, and we're, we're talking about going back to tape and doing all this stuff at that studio. And we'll see. Yeah. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, editing, (laughs) it's so much harder on tape than it is with digital. With working in the digital format, you know, a band that has a lot of riffs and guitar solos and whatnot, did you see a huge difference in speed of doing that stuff? Do you guys punch in a lot or do you go for full takes? Like, what is your, like, the way that you guys do that? It depends on the song. It depends on the producer. Depends on a lot of things. Depends on how well the guy knows the song. Yeah. For the most part, we, you know, we do takes. Yeah. Um, I mean, but my bands, you know, we're old guys. We're seasoned guys. You know, I, I we've been doing this stuff a long time. You know, if you don't know the shit when you, when you're ready to record, it's kind of like. <laughs> then do your homework, dude, man. Get, get your shit together, bro. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? And so, uh, and with Cameron, I mean, he was all about that. It was top to bottom takes kind of stuff. You know, we did some punching because you have to, you know, with certain things, different tones and stuff like that, you know, but uh, it was a really quick process with him. I think the way I did the vocals was just the way I've been doing vocals forever now. It's just basically takes top to bottom, you know, and, uh, you know, then you comp them. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of leads us into my next question. Uh, One Week Records, the the project you've got going, the record label, where you guys do mm. albums in seven days. I know that everything is now up on all the streaming sites. I saw that the other day on the internet. 
Is that, yeah. I know that started out more as like an acoustic kind of singer songwriter thing. And maybe that was easier to get a record done in seven days, but now it's morphed into more full bands. So is, is it a little bit harder for that whole process to take place in a week? It doesn't take place in a week. <laughs> okay. It does not. In the beginning it did. In the beginning it was a, it was an ironclad, you know, rule. It was just this is the way it's going to go. We're going to spend this many days on this, this, and then we're going to mix and that's it. And then by the third or fourth record, I was like, well, if we finish all the tracking in seven days, technically that's okay. I'll <laughs> yeah. mix it later. Yeah. You know, because we were, I, the first couple of ones, I was like 120 hour weeks. That's crazy. You know? I mean, yeah, it was like zero sleep with no drugs, just coffee yeah. and whiskey. You know what I mean? Like, wow. And I would, I would spend a month recovering from one of those things. Like, I think I lost a couple of years of my life, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, really fucked up. Um, and so then I kind of started justifying, oh, well, we'll just mix after, you know, and that's seven days. That's realistic. 10 songs, seven days. We can do that, especially just live acoustic, a lot of time, live vocal, you know, whatever, you know, just going for that raw thing, depending on. You know, and it depends on the artists. Some of the guys come in and they're so good, they can just play the songs live and we get takes. Um, and then we started adding more instrumentation. And then it became like, uh, by the 10th record, I started to think, well, some of these guys are flying from all the way across the world. If I can get them in here, get their guitar and get their vocal done in seven days. I can do with all my buddies in LA or San Francisco, I can bring people in and do a bunch of instrumentation on top of it and send them files and go, what do you think? Yeah. Um, and it turned into that kind of thing. And at some point I was like, you know, it's called warm week records. <laughs> These records are taking more than a week. And I, I admitted that immediately to people that would ask, you know, I was yeah. like, yeah, it started out. It was a cool concept, but realistically, I, you know, I want the records to be good. And when we started adding drums a, a year or two ago uh, to the records, then I just I didn't care at all about that. <laughs> I was just I, I still try to do all. Uh, well, actually, I still do do all of the 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 songwriter whatever he's playing or singing has to get done in a week. Okay, so I still keep that because at least it keeps it. Um, you know, it, it, it keeps alive the original ideas that, that I had for it, which were less time leaves less room for fucking it up. You know, I just want it to be like a demo. I want this raw energy. And so then, you know, you just build around that. Why, why did it take so long to uh, get everything up on the streaming sites? Was there an issue or something? Well, I didn't want to do it. I yeah. mean, the the idea I had was all inclusive, you know, this one format, single platform kind of thing where it's only digital and, you know, you, you, you know, I didn't even want to do the subscription. I didn't want to do the membership thing. I, I just wanted to make these records like BBC sessions and yeah. you could go download them for very little money. And, and then, you know, when we started getting into it, you get into the business side of things and it's like, well, this costs money and this costs money. And we got to pay for all these fucking people that are their hands in the cookie jar, you know, and it slowly just evolved. And, I have two partners that I run one week with that do most of the administrative stuff because I don't like to do that stuff and <laughs> yeah. they're happy to do it. And it keeps it like art, you know, artistic for me. And they started saying a number of years ago, probably five years ago, they said, you know, 
we're just going to have to go to streaming at some point if you really want uh, the artist records to be heard. And that's really what resonated with me was that the idea of this thing was to help people get exposure. Um, and I, I think at some point you just realize, well, that's how people listen to music. I know that's how people listen to music, but I wanted to try to create a different thing. And, um, you know, I, I held on for a really long time to that idea. And at some point I just thought, well, it's okay. Yeah. Because what's important is that the people who make these records are trying to tour and, you know, and they, they're playing a show. Okay. <laughs> and the people in the crowd are sitting there and they go, all right, check it out. If you want to hear these songs, just go to oneweekrecords.com <laughs> and, you know, you can join it. Like they're telling the story on stage and I'm touring with these guys and listening to them give this speech. And I'm thinking to myself, this isn't cool. Yeah. Like I'm making these guys do something really difficult. And you know, most people, they just, they're watching somebody. They think it's good. They go, bam, Spotify, or, yeah, you know, yeah. Amazon music, whatever, uh, Apple music. And they just, they just grab, they just, you know, they follow it or they, they put it in a playlist, you know, they add it and that's it. That's the way people do it. So I, I, the one thing that's really cool about it is that we have 18 records. And so when we we're going to streaming with a lot of records yeah, and, uh, it's kind of cool. Like we, we did, we did, we already did the groundwork, you know? So are there I any, like are there any things, uh, coming out here in the future or the near future from one week? You guys work on anything right now? No. Um, the last record I did wasn't that long ago. It was this kid, Sam Chalcraft, British kid. And, uh, and then, you know, my album came out, uh, just, just during that time. Yeah. Um, I hadn't finished his record. It kind of got put on the back burner and then I started working on Lion Wagon and then I finally got his record done and got it out. And, uh, I just, you know, when I put records out, then this touring cycle stuff starts, you know, I mean, I always tour, but, but if I have new records out, it's like a constant. You know, yeah. I'm just on tour for two years straight. So I, I don't even see any time in the near future when I can do it. But there is a long list of people that I talk to about doing them. So there's no shortage of people that would like to do one. And there's, and I love making them. So I will do more. I just think it's going to be a while. It seems like, you, it seems like you like to stay busy, my man. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. That's I cute. find myself when I'm home for more than a week. And I'm not really working on anything. I kind of start to go crazy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was the thing. Like, I started this podcast because I knew some people in the industry. I listened to podcasts, and I, I didn't have any creative yeah. outlet. You know, I was just going to work and then coming home and hanging out with my kids and my wife. And doing the podcast actually became almost – it feels almost like I'm in a band again. It's kind of cool, you know? Oh, man, I bet. <laughs> I've thought a lot about doing it. I I, I love listening to podcasts. and. And, um, yeah, it just seems like a really fun thing to do. It's, it's funny. Like when I hit now I'm starting to use more publicists. Like I went through your, your publicist, Tito, he was very nice about everything. Oh, he's great. And I use Vanessa over at fat and, and different publicists. But awesome. when I first started out, I was just hitting up people that I knew from the music industry and they would always, most of them said yes, but I got a couple no's. And I remember I got a no from this guy and I was like, listen, man, all I want you to do is talk about yourself for an hour. <laughs> 
Like it's, right. it's, it's not like I'm trying to like get blood out of you or something. It's all self-promotion. It's just a fun conversation, but, but yeah, yeah it's, it's been a nice ride. I've only had a couple no's and those people actually have now hit me up and wanted to come on the show since it's gotten a little bit bigger. <laughs> right. God, that's funny. Yeah. I never say no. I mean, actually I don't really get that involved of course, you know, in, in setting these things up. Um, but I, um, I, 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 I think I've almost never said no to a podcast. Yeah. Cause to me, podcasts fixed the problem with interviews. If you do what I do, one of the things that's a small downside is promotion. And so you have to do interviews and I've been doing these things for like 30 years now or something. Yeah. And I can honestly say that, you know, uh, it, I would say eight times out of 10, interviews are okay because they're like a conversation and i don't mind having a conversation with somebody yeah. but the podcast thing made that absolute and the, you know if you read an interview with somebody if it reads like a conversation between two people that are clicking it's interesting yeah definitely. if it reads if it reads like a textbook you know if it's like in 1994, like I just like, <laughs> hey, I could study history, and that's far more interesting than this dude, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I love podcasts, and I really, I think, you know, it's changed everything for me. I mean, I love doing these, you know, because you you can hear context, you can actually hear the tone in the person's voice, and I l- I love the tangents that they go on too. Like I talked to you about my father. We talked about all kinds of stuff, man. And we also talked about the new record, which is amazing, by the way. I don't know if I've told you that yet. I love it. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, that's it. It's it's more of a conversation, so it might be slightly less boring to listen to, you know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I know we're approaching an hour, and that's where I like to cap these things. I have a couple cool. a couple listener questions, if you wouldn't mind. My God. Okay, so Ty from California wants to know if there's any chance for new bad astronaut stuff. Mm. Oh boy, Ty. <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I you know, maybe someday, but truth of the matter is everyone in the band is my age or older, uh except for one guy and we've lost two drummers to you know dark circumstance yeah and um i just it's i don't know you know it's one of those things where it was it's it was a one of the greatest labors of love in my life was doing that band and sometimes it just feels like it can't be saved or worked and i can't explain it i know that we've We've only played a handful of shows and there was just always something. And I love those guys so much. They're always going to be good friends of mine. But if I have to choose between what I put up my time into, it's going to be other things that actually function properly. Yeah. You know, the the other bands that other people I play with, this is what they do for a living. It's, it's their thing. Uh, Bad Astronaut was, you know, it started as a band of producers, you know, people that I knew that were really close friends of mine and they were all music producers or in music, but it was, it was, it was either their job to produce or own the studio or they had another job. And so that band was just sort of a fun like experiment. And then it ended up being three records. It's just odd. I can't, 
<laughs> I can't imagine getting another drummer and I can't imagine, you know, but it's not like we don't talk about it. Yeah, we yeah. do talk about it. Every once in a while, somebody shoots a text to the whole band and says, what do you say, guys? Get some music going. <laughs> but it always happens to be when I'm in the middle of like a year-long tour cycle and I've got a one week going on and I'm working on a record with a band. And I'm just like, yeah, I'll call you in eight months. You know, like, <laughs> you know, and yeah. So realistically, Ty, I don't think so. Okay. But there is a small, like one in a million chance, Ty. For sure. Yeah, because I never say no, absolutely, because you never know. Okay, so uh, thank you, Ty, for your question. Jay from Germany wants to know how much rehearsal time is involved for me first in the Gimme Gimme's before a tour. Oh, my God. Um, negative. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny that you listen. say that because I, Lindsay from uh, Frenzel Rom, I know that he just did some stuff. He was on the show and I, I talked to Lindsay all the time and he was like, they just sent me like a, a list of songs and I was just supposed to figure it out before I got there. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's kind of what happens in that band. If we have a new guy, um, occasionally there'll be a new guy that says, no, 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 yeah. I need to rehearse with the band first. Yeah. Like I'm not going to just walk on stage and, uh, you know, if, if, if the stars align, like if everybody's around and we can make that work, we'll rehearse. But even when we do rehearse, it's like one day, a yeah. couple hours, you know, we go over the song a few times. I mean, part of the uh, charm of the band, I think, has always been that it's a bit loose, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And everybody's a good player and the songs are pretty easy. And so it, it comes together really fast. Um, but no, there's not a lot of rehearsal. Even when we're making a new record, it's kind of, it's pretty light. <laughs> okay. Well, Jay, thank you very much for your question. I have one more question. I think you'll enjoy this question. This is from Fred in California, and he wants to know what your favorite Nardcore band is. Oof. That's tough. Yeah, that's what um, I thought, too. And if anybody out there doesn't know a listener, Nardcore are bands from the whole Oxnard like scene, correct? Ventura, Oxnard, and there was some Santa Barbara Nardcore bands, um, like RKL. I just, and, I just got an education in Nardcore the other day because Scott from Poli was on the show and he told me all about it. Yeah, I mean, originally like Camarillo, Oxnard, like the Oxnard is in between this town of Camarillo where I grew up, and Ventura, which is you know to North, like yeah, and Oxnard's in the center, and and many of those bands are from that general part of central california or yeah. southern california i guess it's southern cal and uh yeah there's so many good narcore bands i mean it was a really cool scene um just a different set sounds a little different than the other early punk like it really does kind of have a sound aggression dr no and those bands i'm gonna have to go with rkl though okay even though rkl only really did like a like a seven inch with a certain amount of songs um and they were on a comp, one of the, uh, I mean, uh, with Doug Moody, who, you know, did comps that had a lot of stuff, narcore stuff on it. Uh, I mean, whatever, they're, they're from that area. One of your members is from RKL, correct? Everyone in my band has been oh. in RKL, okay. including me, <laughs> including me. But I was only <laughs> in the band before, I was in the original incarnation of the band, like, okay. The singer Jason and I had been playing together, and then Chris and Bomber, Chris Rest, who's in Lagwagon now, 
um, Chris and Bomber, I was kind of messing around with those guys too. And I introduced him to Jason and then I got kicked out like before the band even became a band. Cause I was always in trouble with my mom. I could, I kept getting grounded and stuff and they were like, yeah, dude, it's not going to work. But, uh, but yeah, no, all the other guys have been in different times, uh, eras of the band, you know, and Chris was an original member. Um, it's weird. Like, yeah, it's kind of a trip. Sometimes we'll play RKL songs at practice <laughs> or at soundcheck. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, that's really part of our past, but I don't look at the band as a band that I was ever really in, you know, cause yeah. I was in it so briefly in the beginning. And, um, of that Narcore stuff, I like what RKL was doing, but it's really hard. I mean, I love Dr. No, I love aggression. I love a lot of those bands. I knew that would be a hard question for you, but Fred, thank you very much for your question. And Joey, we've come to the end of this conversation. I know you've got a lot to do. You're moving and everything, like you said. So uh, can you tell me what the future is going to be like for the band here in the, the upcoming months? I know you guys are going on tour with Face to Face. What else is going on? Well, we're um, just a ton of touring. Um, doing this, this tour with Face, and then we're going to Europe for a few weeks. Um, and then I think we've just got like Australia, Japan, New Zealand, um, another Europe tour and more States touring and just, it goes on like all next year, basically just a lot, a lot of touring. Um, yeah, that's, (laughs) that's what I'm, that's what I'm hearing through the grapevine. (laughs) Well, I want everybody out there that's listening to check out the new Lagwagon, Lag, I can't even say your name, man. The new Lagwagon <laughs> album, Railer, out October 4th on Fat Records. Also, Joey's new solo record, Let Me Know When You Give Up. It, uh, it came out in July. Everything's on Spotify, Apple Music. Believe me, I've been listening all week in preparation to talk to you, and it's awesome. So everybody check that out. And uh, Joey, I just want to say this was great. I appreciate your time. And if you guys play anywhere close to Indianapolis, I will be there and I'm buying you a beer, man. Awesome, Chris. Thanks, man. Yeah, that was a good talk. Cool. Well, I appreciate it and have a great night and enjoy your move if you can. I will try. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you very much, man. Talk to you later. All right. Take care. Bye. So there it was, my conversation with Mr. Joey Cape from Lagwagon. It was so much fun talking to Joey. I've been such a fan of his, and I think I've met him before. I'm not really sure, but it was so much fun kind of geeking out and talking about all that stuff, and uh, especially hearing some of the old stories from before I was in the Ataris when he was working with Chris in the studio. That was really, really cool. But uh, hopefully we'll have Joey back in the future. I, I got to tell you, his his new solo record, Let Me Know When You Gave Up, I mean, I guess it came about in July, maybe. It's so good, and... uh if you like Lagwagon, you should check it out. Lagwagon, you know, is more punky and just kind of fast and heavy. But his solo stuff is just its very melodic and pretty, and you can kind of hear all those Beatles influences and everything that he was talking about during the conversation. So, uh, yeah, go, go check out Let Me Know When You Give Up and uh, Railer, the brand-new record by Lagwagon. And if you see them, you know, come into your town, go check them out. They're on tour right now with Face to Face. And like Joey said, they're going to go to Europe They're going to do the whole thing, man. Japan, Australia, everywhere. So if Lagwagon is coming to your neck of the woods, go check them out and tell Joey that I sent you. So uh, that's it for this week. I would like to know, I saw this story earlier today, uh, Yellow Card is suing this uh, rapper guy, Juice World, over his song Lucid Dreams. 
Uh, I've had to teach that song to a couple kids actually at, at guitar lessons. And it's got a cool little kind of acoustic guitar part in it. I don't think they're take, talking about that. They're suing him over, I think, the melody in the singing. So uh, I don't know. If you guys haven't heard about that, go check it out. Juice World, Lucid Dreams. And then I'm not sure the name of the yellow card track, but I'm sure if you just go to Loudwire or, or Rolling Stone or any of those, like whatever music blogs, they'll have it. Just Google yellow card and Juice World and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. But I'd like to know your thoughts. I'd like to know if you think the songs are similar. I listen to both songs and I do hear the same cadence and some of the same notes in the melody for the vocals. So they might they might have something that that rapper guy has said in past interviews that he really liked and kind of respected kind of the emo pop punky stuff. So uh, good luck, Yellow Card. I hope you get a piece of that money, man. It's <laughs> I think they're wanting like fifteen grand or fifteen not grand fifteen million dollars plus like you know in perpetuity getting royalties off of touring and and whatever because without that song that guy wouldn't be anything really. So. Uh, Good on you, yellow card. I hope it works out for you, and I hope you guys uh, make some money off of that dude. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, thank you guys so much. Next week on the program, King Buzzo, Buzz Osborne, from the mighty Melvins. I got to go down to Indianapolis when the Melvins played and do this in person, and it was a really, really cool interview. Probably one of my favorite interviews, but one of the most kind of awkward uh, I love Buzz. He was a really cool guy and very gracious, but <laughs> he had some funny answers to some of the questions. And and uh, I don't know. It's it's a different kind of interview. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. If uh, you, I mean, Dewey over at Pure Pleasure had Buzz on, and I mean, you guys can Google and listen to stuff that Buzz says in interviews. He's he's a unique guy. It was really cool, and I can't wait for you guys to check it out. So that is next week on the program. Before I get out of here, I'm going to play a couple songs. I'm going to play Stealing Light, the leadoff track on the new Lagwagon record, Railer. And after that, I'm going to play the title track from Joey's solo record, Let Me Know When You Give Up. So I will see you guys next week. Thank you so much for all the support. And I'm out. See ya.
Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob Podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.